0: Humans are most alive when they light up from their passions. Curious to learn who will be sparking us today? Welcome to where we're most alive right now. Our guest for this episode has the type of worldview that I think we need more of. In a climate where terms like politics and patriotism are rife with emotion and controversy, discussing them with someone like Lou Feynman is such a breath of fresh air. His passion on these topics has the same magnitude as others, but it's laced with an empathetic curiosity that steers it in a productive direction. That is, it's not death to my enemies or those who disagree with me, which may or may not surprise you coming from a Marine. Actually, in hindsight, our conversation about Lou and his passions feels like a microcosm of how he approaches things. We spent some time exploring the facts and stories of his history to understand how we got here, then had some open dialogue around different ideas in the present rooted in history and values. Then ask some questions about where things might be headed based on all that, and finally how all of those, past, present, and future, tie into each other and into the human experience. When I first met him, I was nervous what he'd be like as he was marrying into our family, so I knew I'd be dealing with him for a while. As I'm having him on the show, I'm of course now very appreciative that he's in the family, so hey, I think you should give the new guy a chance too. I really think you'll also enjoy dealing here for a while. With Lou Feynman.
1: Last week, I uh, officially accepted a position as a national security and defense policy fellow with the office of Senator Lisa Murkowski from the great state of Alaska. There we go. It has not quite hit me yet, uh, the emotions, um, but this is an opportunity like this is something I've been striving for for. Uh, somewhere between my whole life and the last four years. And so at least for the last four years to have this opportunity is, uh, I'm just absolutely over the moon. I'm grateful. One of the first people I called, uh, when I got the offer was your brother, uh, Josh, cause he talks about, um, you know, he's a coach and he talks about positivity and speaking things into existence. And I don't I necessarily speak this into existence, but I just went for it and kept going and I didn't know where it would land. I didn't know if it would be Capitol Hill or some other position in government or in a think tank, you know, writing papers or doing research. I had no idea where this was going to go, but I knew what my passion was and what was interesting to me. And I just kept, well, my dad always said, keep showing up. Half a life is just Mm -hmm. showing up. And so I just kept showing up and, I mean, I got my, finished my grad degree over two years ago and I could have, Hey, you know, looked around for a little bit, didn't find anything. And then just kind of moved on. Um, but you know, one email at a time or one phone conversation at a time, uh, whatever it was, I just kept going. And, um, uh, this opportunity came along or was presented, um, uh, I shouldn't say it came along <laughs> I, yeah. where I worked doggedly to get some kind of opportunity. And this is, this is the one of two that, that was offered to me in the last two weeks. And uh, one of the things that almost kind of pissed me off is like, man, four years I'd, I'd kill for any of these opportunities. I ended up getting two of them. Uh, and then
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> I had to tell somebody no, which is a great position to be in, but uh, it's ironic. So whatever someone is into, Uh, you know, if someone's listening to this and they've had a dream out there, it gets back to your thing of comedy, right? Hey, how am I going to know if I don't do it? Um, and, and what's stopping you? Yeah. So I'm, I'm just super excited for this opportunity. So, so anyone listening, um, whatever it is that's in the back of your mind or the front of your mind or has been on your mind for a long time, just keep going, put one foot in front of the other. Um, and when one door closes, you know. You don't have to try to break through that one, but maybe just keep going down the hall. I don't know where you got to go, but if you stand still, you're not going to go anywhere. That's
0: great. Well, congratulations, number one. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for taking your personal joy here and turning that around and trying to share that out with other people. That's very nice. I'm excited to hear a lot more about that as you go. Curious to see how that plays in and what you'll be working on.
1: You know, I, yeah, I might have to get some uh, get some approval by the uh, the PR people <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> once I'm officially like working for somebody. Um, but uh, I guess I guess you could say all uh, all opinions held in this podcast are those of my own, because as as of our recording, I, I don't work for anybody. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go. It's good to have yes. you here.
1: It's great to be here. Uh, I did a little preparation. Hopefully, I didn't over prepare. I don't know uh, i've been listening oh. to your, I've been listening to your podcast for a while. uh fantastic job by the way so far. Big thank fan. you.
0: that's very kind of you to even listen.
1: Well, yeah. I wrote about my passions, which so I wrote down uh, my family, my country, my faith, uh hiking or uh nature, right so that kind of gets out of that uh yep. football um history, and the human experience in general
0: the human experience in general I'm tempted yes. to start there but I feel like we should we should maybe go through some of the others first where do you sure. want to
1: start sure um I believe that you know as people grow and develop and your personality kind of comes out you're, you're a mix of of the uh, gen- you're the genetic makeup of your your mother and father right uh, and mm-hmm. as and, and kind of the luck that that gives you and then you're also shaped by your environment right So it's a, it's a mix of both and yeah. the experiences that you get, you know how is it that the genetic makeup, if you have the personality that you're born with, because you are born with a personality. I got three kids; they're all unique. They're all born with their own personality. Um, mm-hmm. But how does your personality respond to uh, the events that occur, or the, uh, na- the excuse me, the nurture, if you will, that's given to you—nature versus nurture—throughout uh, yep. your life, and and that's kind of what what shapes us. So, um, so going back to my parents, uh, I would, my mom would describe herself or I would describe her as a, uh, a, a Florida flower child from the, uh, from the sixties and seventies movement. Um, there not a hippie, the hippie part, right? Yeah. Oh, so not never mind. I would- well, I would not say she's a hippie because like she, you know, like showered and like didn't do a lot of like she was around the people that didn't shower. But like she would, you know, she'll tell you this herself. Um, yeah. But uh, but very much into uh, kind of the counterculture, um, but very spiritual uh, in in that sense. Um, the songs, so there's a Tom Petty song called Wildflowers. And mm-hmm. whenever I hear that song, I think of my mother. Um, that nice. to me okay. is the, the, the opinion of my mom. My dad is a uh, New England preppy, um, mm-hmm. so born and raised in New England. Uh, moved to South Florida uh, for law school. Never returned uh, permanently. I mean, obviously for vacations, what have you. But sure, sure. Uh, so he's been down in South Florida since the since the uh, mid seventies. Uh, And so that has had an effect on him. My dad would describe his uh, his high school experience as the Dead Poet Society. um, If you've ever seen that movie. So I um,
0: love that movie.
1: Yes. So that's if you so if you can imagine like uh, like a child of the beach and, you know, um, you know, with a flower in her hair, you know, with with the guy from one of the guys from the Dead Poet Society. Like, you know, there's (laughs) there's a mix. Right. So 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 uh, no
0: wonder you're so weird.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) But no, I think that uh, that definitely, uh, you know, has an impact on on you growing up. And then between three and six years of age, two of my grandparents pass away and one grandparent is diagnosed with um, dementia, Alzheimer's, really. Um, Mm. And so I kind of really only have one grandparent growing up and family has always just been so important to me. Um, but you know, during those critical, crucial times, those formative years, I'm being told stories like all about my grandparents and, uh, the World War II generation and, uh, you know, and, and their impact on the world and their impact on our country and kind of what it means to be us. Um, my parents are divorced by the way, it may be not surprising based on, based on their backgrounds. Right. Um, but Mm -hmm. that also happens when I'm pretty young. And so, you know, uh, psychologists will say, or, you know, people who study psychology will say, Hey, the I kind of like the younger you are in life. Um, if you have some sort of disruption like that, then, then a lot of times in life, you're seeking that foundation or that base or that, that family is something that you'll cling to. Um, mm. and I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems to be very true for me that I've, I've very much based my, uh, my life and, uh, some of my passions, I guess you'd say around family. Um, so I, you know, despite a, you know, a, a split household, I have a fantastic relationship with my dad and my mom. Uh, and mm-hmm. I feel very close to my siblings. You want to talk about what's passionate. I'm passionate about, you know, those people. Um, and, and, and obviously the people that have come into their lives through marriage and kids and that type of thing. Um, I'm passionate about that as well. And then I'm passionate about my own family. So I have a wife and three kids. And I mean, that is, that's the world to me. People are like, Oh, uh, of course it is. But I don't know if it's cliche. I don't really care. That's that to me is um, that's my passion is is family and not just my own. But hearing when I hear stories about other people's families and like kind of understand what their traditions are. I mean, even if I don't know you, right? That one of the fascinating things I I think is great is hearing people, especially from other places. Um, you know, immigrants coming into our country or you travel elsewhere and you run to other people and hearing about people's traditions and their family structure and their dynamics, I eat that up. I just think it's fantastic. Yeah. So that's what's kind of then led to further passions that I have, I'd say.
0: Do you have certain family traditions that you're intentional about based on this?
1: Um, so my wife would say I'm Mr. Nostalgia. So oh yeah. Anything that comes up, uh family heirlooms. Um, something that, you know, I heard in a story that our grandfather did or that I remember that we did from a childhood, from our childhood. uh, It's very important to me to maintain that. So much sometimes to the chagrin of, uh, of my wife, we'll have a Christmas tree that has plenty of um, our new ornaments on it from our family and stuff we collect. And then I have stuff from, you know, uh, two generations ago that I also want to hang on the Christmas tree and she loves that, but they don't always, look right together on the same tree. So yeah. it's like, so how do we handle this? <laughs> um I have a a stuffed Santa and a stuffed Frosty. I don't know if you remember. You probably do. WWF uh F and WWE, the yep. uh, you know the Hulk Hogans, um and like, I mean I'm talking like mid eighties, early nineties wrestlers, right? Classic. And so yeah. So we had a Hulk Hogan, I want to say we had a Brett the Hitman Heart. it could be wrong, but we had like three foot size pillows of these guys (laughs) so somehow my mom also got the same size things for like a santa and a frosty and so like to young me like these are the coolest santa and frosty ever and they were right next to our front door on the inside my whole life growing up i just like it is not christmas if these things are out as you can imagine here it is 30 35 years later my wife's like what are these (laughs) and i'm like there are Christmas decorations that are going up because it's Christmas. I mean, to me, it's so much. It's so impactful. It's not Christmas if I don't have these things out. And as insignificant monetary wise as they are, they're so valuable to me because they bring me back to a memory and a house uh, and a family that I had growing up that was so important to me. And and so that's my ties. Those are th- that's how things of that nature manifest is probably my nostalgia for them.
0: Now, that's an awesome example. I, I, I mean, the holidays, that's what they're, I think that's what they're for. It's those memories. It's those the things to be nostalgic
1: about. Right. I've, I've got a uh, Christmas village full of these little mini iron. Tokens like skiers and skaters and uh, houses and through oral tradition, these were in my grandfather's house in northern New York in the Adirondacks. These guys, some of them have got to be 100 years old by now because my grandfather was born in 1917 and they're in the house when he's a kid and they're going strong. Um, And so so having those up, it's just I love it. Uh, that I mean, it gives me goosebumps.
0: That's great. So, all right, this is the family stuff and how it manifests. You you got a happy holiday home. That's nice. You yeah. said it, it. It's led you to other things. This family passion, and then you mentioned you know those. I don't even was it seven or eight in the beginning. Country and faith and
1: let's so let's talk about country history and the human experience. Right. Okay. So yeah. So so you had a fantastic interview with a Mrs. Kathy Manley. And the fact that she is or was a uh, middle school librarian or media specialist. Um, so it turns out my mother also is a librarian or was a librarian in a pre-K through eight school uh, that I attended from kindergarten to eighth grade and so did my siblings. And so she's in the library. So every day after school, when most kids are going home, I'm surrounded by books um, and so other uh, also being surrounded by books, I'm surrounded by Newsweek and time and all these other magazines that are available. I mean, you're like Newsweek and time in a kid's library. We had other kids' magazines. We had National Geographic's; Those were interesting. Mm-hmm. We had highlights and life and this other stuff. I yeah. went for Newsweek and time. That's just <laughs> what was interesting to me. Um, yeah. also I, and this is reflectively thinking about it. Around the early 90s, it's the 50-year anniversary of a lot of famous World War II events and battles. So I have three grandparents who actually served during World War II, both grandfathers, and then my, my grandmother was also in the Navy. Um, wow, and I didn't know so, that. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, my mother's father and mother met in during World War II. My, my grandfather was a dentist, and my grandmother was a Navy nurse. And then my dad's father was a B-17 pilot in Europe. Uh, during world war II, flew with the eighth air, with the eighth air force flew, whatever the requisite number of missions was, I believe it was 20. If if you have a historian listening to, uh, uh, listen to the podcast, they might call me out and say, it wasn't 20, you know, whatever it was, it was, it was a high number of missions you had to run. Um, and then you could get sent home. They called it the lucky bastard club. Um, and so he was in the lucky bastard club and signed up for an additional 10 missions or something like that. Um, wow. or, or an additional tour, uh, did that, and, and then came home. So that grandfather um, passes away when I'm pretty young. The other grandfather has Alzheimer's. All these kind of stories are being told in the media at that time. I'm being told a bunch of stories about my grandfathers and about World War II and, uh, and the U.S.'s role in World War II. And as a curious kid, I ask why all the time. And kudos mm. to my parents and most people that I ran into that I asked these questions to. No one ever shied away from my answers, my questions of why. And it's the same thing that I've passed on to my kids. I always, always try to give at least some answer as age appropriate as I can to my kids when they ask why. Um, I also remember, I find my memory plays a a strong role in my passions and, and what I focus on. I specifically remember my dad coming back to the house because he didn't have either cable or the right station or whatever it was to watch the Gulf war, uh, in 1991. So yeah, so I'm five years old. Um, and I remember watching, watching the Persian Gulf war on TV, uh, or at least the news coverage of it, um, because dad was home. (laughs) So, so my mind is, my mind is focused and sharp. So, um, the reason I'm telling you all this is to kind of get into, you know what drives my life and what what drives me professionally starts at a very young age. Uh, when it comes to international relations and America's role in the world and how everyday Americans, i.e., my grandfather's and grandmother or whoever happens to be, can play a part or do play a part in our nation in crafting our nation's policy and in implementing. Uh, those policies around the world, so then that gets me asking more questions about history and uh I just I soak it all up like a sponge, so in any case i i you know i i, I mean in eighth grade, I wrote a position paper on the um the reasons why uh the u s went into the Vietnam War and if that was you know good or not. Or if not good, it wasn't a it wasn't a value judgment. Um, it was it was a stance on you know was this something that the that America should have done you know and why or why not? Where'd you land? I landed on the aspect that according to the policymakers at the time, really, if you come from a generation of dealing with defeating global fascism uh, and Japanese imperialism uh, and winning that fight. And then almost immediately from a historical perspective, right? From a day to day, it was not immediate, but from a historical perspective, we pretty much roll right into the cold war. Um, and so it's a very natural thought of, okay, you know, this type of global evil expanded in these ways and Munich and all the other appeasement decisions that went into, Hitler growing power larger and larger and larger in Europe, if we see the same thing happening on a scale with global communism, well, of course, we need to take steps to combat that. And so Mm -hmm. uh, the view of the domino theory and of Vietnam being a a linchpin in Southeast Asia and that if Vietnam falls, China is just going to keep, you know, or just communism is just going to keep swooping over it. Not understanding that, although they are definitely communist, there's no doubt about that. More than communist, they're nationalist. And Mm. the Vietnamese view the Chinese not as friendly as we in America kind of figured, oh, like, yeah, they're all communist. They all get together. They're Um, all buddies. Yeah. Having traveled to Vietnam myself and you've had a a guest who lives in Vietnam um, on, you know, here I could tell you. The Vietnamese perspective is yeah, the Americans were here for eight years, but you know, that really wasn't that bad. But the French were here for a couple hundred years, so that wasn't really that bad. But the Chinese have been here for a thousand. And so mm. they view it on a much larger and longer scope um, than American foreign policy uh, decision makers. So it made total sense. And if I was in the shoes of the Kennedy or Johnson administration as an eighth grader, right? Would would I not have made the same decisions that they did, having gone through the history that they did? And so that Mm -hmm. also gets to our understanding of the human experience, which is, I think, what I've developed and what I have a passion for is seeing people's decision-making and people's personalities and people's lives and the way that they live them and... Maybe having it be against what would be my interests or our interests uh, as Americans or as someone who you know wants to defend the Constitution um, and the idea of uh, liberal democracy or uh, individual rights and someone who comes from a society or somewhere else where they have a different perspective and a different set of priorities and yeah. understanding that. The human experience and the human condition can allow, like I said, people to have their genetics and their experiences and their environment both work together to form the decisions that they end up making. Kind of hard to pass judgment, even if you end up on the other side of the rifle (laughs) as the other guy, you know, to understand that he or she is coming from that perspective and it's not necessarily evil or bad. It might be different and it might be adversarial from yours and it might result in war, but that doesn't mean that the other person is inherently a bad person.
0: You're saying those things as a, as a Marine and you've been overseas, you've, you've, you've done tours of duty and you just have that mindset that you outlined of kind of seeing the other guy's perspective, other person's perspective, even if they're on the other side of a rifle, like how did that play into your mind or play out in your
1: life when you were doing tours of duty? Great question. I'll back it up a little bit and say that that aspect and that teaching of being a Marine and kind of understanding your enemy, I think I was more naturally inclined to that because of my background and because of the way I was raised, because I had a more free thinking mother who challenged me to question and because I had a mind that already wanted to ask, already was asking why independent Mm -hmm. of that. Um, and a father who was in the practice of law, who no matter what we wanted to do, or where we thought we were going to go, or who we thought we were going to hang out with, you know, you had to build your case <laughs> uh, of why you made the decisions you made. You know, both of those influences uh, definitely kind of affected my my outlook on life and my my understanding of, of people. And then I think seeing that in the Marine Corps just kind of reinforced. Uh, or or just made a good fit for me.
0: So, so are you saying the Marines train Marines this way to understand their enemy, obviously, but to that level of, like, empathy that I'm hearing from you?
1: I don't know if we train to that level of empathy for everyone all the time, but it is definitely, um, even if it's not deliberate, in my opinion, having gone through it and have been a Marine for a while, and other Marines might disagree, in my opinion, there it's a bit inherent to anyone who's looking at what we do train to that that's an important aspect so i'll give you an example mm-hmm. one of the first things you learn is the is acronyms of course but there's an an acronym for uh writing uh, an order or for giving an order and it's called smiac so the s in smiac is situation before you're even getting to the mission Right. Because M is mission. So S is situation. You have to talk about the general situation first. So when you talk about the general situation, you kind of give a you know a brief orientation. Of what's going on? The, f- the first bullet point in there before you even get to like the friendly situation, what's going on with your people is enemy. And you mm. talk about your enemy's disposition and their forces that they have, the unit that they're covering from the activities they're doing it. When they were last in those activities, what we expect them to do, what's most likely for them to do, what's most dangerous for them to do, we go into all of these aspects of the enemy. Then the next thing we analyze when we're, or the next thing we're going to talk about in our mission, is friendly. And so even if we're not directly saying, and there are courses uh, that go through, and as you go through uh, different levels uh, in your career, as a, a Marine goes through different levels of career, and I'm sure the other services do something very similar to this. Um, You'll talk about uh, empathy and uh, what we call red teaming, which is flipping the map around. And so Mm -hmm. you have, you know, your side of the map. And so you flip the map around um, and now you're now you're saying, okay, if I'm the adversary, what would I be doing? What are my strengths and weaknesses? How would I be evaluating myself and the enemy? And that helps us make a better plan. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of already um, inherent in it. And I think uh, the Marine Corps, you know, in teaching that does a very good job of of saying, hey, not only is it important for you to know this subliminally, before we even think about ourselves, we're thinking about the enemy first.
0: It seems strange to me and very intriguing that the Marine Corps would almost humanize the enemy in some way. Like, I, I, strategically, it's obvious why that's advantageous, but it. I would expect that the Marine Corps and our military at large would somehow train us to almost dehumanize the enemy so that it, it wasn't as difficult to kill him.
1: You know, that's a that's a great point um, that you make. And I, f- I don't think that that doesn't happen um, as Otherwise. a natural course of circumstances. But I yeah. think that relates more to the human experience and what we as humans choose to do in order to make things easier for us. Yeah. As opposed to what's taught. And what's actually taught is a resilience to that because the more you actually dehumanize the enemy or dehumanize an adversary, the spiral only goes down. And when it's time for you to return and rejoin society, that's where you see a lot of problems. And that's, yeah. in my opinion, a mark of poor leadership to dehumanize the enemy to, to a certain degree. I'll, I'll give you a, a quote. And it it used to be on my cubicle wall when I was was on active duty. And it's from uh, Marine Corps Doctrinal Publication 1, MCDP 1, uh, called Warfighting. And uh, the quote is, War is among the greatest horrors known to humanity. It should never be romanticized. And Uh it, it just brings a level of realism. And one of the things that is my greatest pet peeves is um what i would what I call i don't know if there's another term for it I call it faux patriotism Okay. but, yeah. but uh you know a sense uh, and don't get me wrong right like we've heard I've heard stories at least of you know people coming back from Vietnam and the terrible way that our soldiers were treated um you know by our general population and obviously you know that's the other side of the spectrum, but I do think on You know, if the pendulum has swung so far to the other side and the military can never do anything wrong and there's never a reason for introspection um, on on how the Marine Corps, the military in general conducts its business. And we have this sense of, again, what I call faux patriotism, where it's just. Uh, America at all costs and and I'm a red blooded America here, right? Like I, I am willing to put my life on the line here for my country. Absolutely. Uh, And I have in the past, but it's, it's more than just, um, waving a flag and the opposite of, you know, just spitting in the other guy's face.
0: Let me know if I'm making a jump that you're not making where it lands is not just people are blindly supporting troops too much. It's broader than that. Right
1: right correct and i i was i wasn't going to make the leap to politicians but i think it's a very fair leap to make and i think it's a a logical leap to make um i just i was more just going with the the sentiment in general of yeah i support my troops and i support my country i don't really know what that means uh but yeah america let's win i was like uh, okay but <laughs> to what end right to what objective to what goal what what is it that we want to accomplish
0: this is w- one of the things i love about you and appreciate about you is like in general, I'm drawn to these things and you're just an, an embodiment of it in some ways like this. You're a Marine. You're as patriotic a person as I know, but you also take issue with people who are patriotic, like you said, to the far end of the spectrum where it's, it's not, it comes off a certain way or whatever. But I think it's important to talk through what that means. And I think oh, in the lens of Vietnam is maybe a starting point, or if you have a different um, framework you'd like to discuss it in, but I watched, you know, a Vietnam documentary and that was a point of analysis was at that time is when it really kind of first came into question in this way. What is patriotism? Is it my country is right at all costs and support America? Or is it if my country is doing something that I don't like, that isn't in line with what I think its ideals are speaking up and speaking out and protesting against that?
1: That's, I, that's a fantastic question. I'm so excited to talk about this. Um, I, I don't <laughs> know if I, I don't know if you're gonna like my answer, though, because I, I feel like my answer, I want to bring back a couple hundred years from Vietnam to talk about your answer. Okay, Um, go for it. So I would say that the founding of America as an experiment in democracy and as the uh, governmental embodiment for lack of, that's just how I'm phrasing it, of the ideas of the Enlightenment uh, are a contradiction and a departure from the International system, as it came out in the Treaty of Westphalia, you know, my king says this, my, uh, you know, my sovereign says this, I am going to war for my king, for my sovereign against our enemies, no matter what. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm backing them 100%. Once the ideas of the Enlightenment take hold and are manifested in a representative government that we now have on this side of the Atlantic, I think, in my opinion, the term of patriotism in this country now has to be different. And so if you're looking at it from an historical perspective, then yes, patriotism is is just that, right? A a blind loyalty and love for your country. Because what ideals does your country stand for? My country doesn't have to stand for ideals. My, My ideals are what the king says or the queen says or whatever it is. But now that I have... Uh, a nation that's founded on ideas, and those ideas then inspire people to create a government of them, by them, and for them, and that they now think or believe that they have the right to create that government based on the laws provided by nature's God. Well, then of course, the changing of that government or the questioning of the policies of that government has to be patriotic because this government is formed not on a sovereign person. This, the the rights of the people do not come from their sovereign. The sovereignty is provided uh, or is allowed to exist because the people have said it should exist. And that is the great difference. And so in answer to your question, I I would say in this country, patriotism is the questioning of our policies. And then if you agree with them, then then the affirmation of them. However, that being said, you also got to realize at the end, while you can question your ideas or question our policies, the president is still the president. And the sitting members of the House of Representatives and the sitting senators Are sitting members of Congress, elected by their states, elected by their districts, and they have been put in those positions by their constituents. So they, while they have an obligation to their constituents, I believe we also have an obligation to see to their success. Because at the end of the day, even if I disagree with someone politically on a foreign relations scale. And on an international relations scale, the failure of one party in office doesn't make the other party look better. It just makes America look worse. Mm. And so while it is patriotic to me to question the policies of uh, of an administration uh, or of our country uh, and to to ask those questions of why are we doing this and is this really what we want so that we can be informed voters? Uh, and informed me- members of our of uh, of the constituency and of the republic, it doesn't um, it doesn't just stop there. It projects outward. So, as as much as you might not like who's sitting in a certain chair or a certain office at a certain point, it's still the American flag. It's still the Constitution that they swore to protect and defend.
0: That's a powerful point, and I like that. Uh, I'm glad you shared that. I, I want to push you for an example of some sort for. What's the difference between questioning a policy and then seeing to its success even after you've expressed disagreement like how does that actually look or play out?
1: Let's take for example a border wall. This is going to be a hot button issue with probably a lot of your listeners because <laughs> it's a hot button issue for a lot of the country, right The fact is is that you, you can have folks on either side of this issue but at the at the end of the day, if an administration that's making decisions has said this wall is going to be built and it's going to cost X of millions of dollars from my perspective. uh, And I wasn't someone who was told to go to the border, but if I was, I would want to be darn sure that this section of the wall is built well, because Mm. we're paying for it. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So, and it is, it is, it is the, um, it is the decision of the policymaker to do this. Now, if we decide that this is a terrible policy and the next administration comes in in four years, and changes the whole thing, so be it. But at this time, if you value our system and you value our government, then you want that government to succeed for the time that it's there. So to me, if you're on the left and you're rooting for the right to fail, or if you're the right and you're cheering against the left when they're in the White House, or they have a majority in the House of Representatives and a split Congress and you're, and you're hoping that they fail, will the people that really win are sitting in Beijing and Moscow and Pyongyang and Tehran, that's who wins if we fail.
0: So why is our system so messed up? You like to
1: ask why. Oh, wow, are we messed up? <laughs> you know or or are we telling ourselves we're messed up? Um, oh yeah, no, there are oh, believe me, I've gotten hot <laughs> the last uh, <laughs> the last several years. For sure. At many times. In my opinion, that is, uh, that is the result of a, of a thriving democracy. Now, I would say we're definitely more highly polarized right now than we have been for arguably any time since since the Civil War. And I do think that that's a problem. Um, I don't think that that's a problem we can't overcome. This is, uh, there's, a great, uh, there's a great book um, by an author, Walter Russell Mead, and he wrote a book called Special Providence. And the allegory he gives to the American system is basically a large raft that is put together pretty loosely. And the logs on the left are not the same as the logs on the right. And sometimes the ballast is a little bit off. And a lot of times you think you're sinking. But because of that, it is so maneuverable that when it comes to rock formations or things that will could take you down, you can kind of bump into the rocks and Bounce around them a little bit and keep going down the stream. Uh, And you're less susceptible to groundings. Whereas if you have a ship that is tightly put together, highly organized, the ship's captain is on point. I mean, it runs like a well-oiled machine, very well-maintained. It is maybe the biggest and the best ship that has ever been made in the world. If you hit an iceberg at the wrong spot... (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to be a good day for you, for anybody else. So the argument that we're not well put together or we're put together in an inefficient way actually allows us to be more maneuverable and to kind of bend with the flow and changing of times uh, as they go.
0: Yeah, because I think what you just described is our underlying structure, which is built on the foundation of the, the Constitution. And so, yeah, it makes sense that the structure is good well it's it's know.
1: inherently inefficient and it's it, it makes it inherently hard to get things done and to do things right and I think we're struggling uh, our government is struggling in an era where the pace of decision making the pace of economics the pace of the world has sped up very quickly I mean we are in a more than twenty four hour news cycle you have all of the information uh, of the history of the world and everything else in the in the pocket of your pants if you want it or the palm of your hands um <laughs> that's, and, that's and, and, you, and you pro- and you probably use it to watch porn and cat videos so what are you <laughs> doing like you know what i'm saying so I think we're this as, is my point we're as fallible as uh you know as 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 we allow ourselves to be and, and so there is there's i guess there's an argument yeah to be made that uh an inefficient government you know is it is it gonna do well but because of that, our system is designed to push um, innovation, to push decision making, um, to push uh, a lot of things that uh, make people's lives easier or harder or what have you away from the government because it's designed to be inefficient. And so I think a lot of the founders knew it was desi- it was inefficient and made it that way. Take, for instance, uh, the Soviet Union. Like the Soviet Union is running on a certain a certain way, essentially planned economy, and yeah, it's going for however long, but it lasts from the end of World War One through I mean, the end of the Cold War. That's a that's a seventy year run, right? Right. Now, mm-hmm. is, does Russia as it exists last? a lot? Oh, heck yeah, it's lasted a long a lot longer. But as a political system, how long did the Soviet Union really last? Communist China, uh, I think, is probably the biggest uh, rising challenge to the United States in that they have a system that is not based on individual liberty and freedom, but has shown itself to be adaptive as time goes on. The government and the way things run in China look vastly different now than they did in 1949. So right. is, this, is this a rising entity or a rising uh, nation or rising system that is able to show the world, hey, you don't have to embrace democracy and individual rights and freedom in order to prosper for your people and be adaptive so that when problems come, you can change and then keep moving. You can be autocratic and do that.
0: I, I heard framed somewhere once, and I can't remember where, just looking at US China. The US is based on and built on the freedom of the individual. And and that's that's the sacred foundation of the entire system. Right whereas in china it's using loose terms here it's based on the sanctity of the nation of china the country of china and right yeah
1: the the middle the, the middle kingdom
0: yes and so the people yeah. work towards supporting and propping up china the they you know the nation as a whole so it's 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 inverted right and so right. when when it's it's almost an interesting tie back to the blind patriotism thing that we hear sometimes about america all the time yeah, and it's like those people are usually also shouting and rallying for freedom but if it's america all the time then it's not the individual's freedom but that's kind of a tangent it might tie in but point being i think it's an an irony for sure yeah so it it seems to be this competition now between these two inverse systems of is it better are you going to move things forward when you have this united mission of the overarching nation as your goal and your holy holy thing to prop up or is the freedom of the individual going to continue to be the best foundation for the you know, most successful in whatever way you want to define. that? Right. And nation. I think
1: that's a, that's a, that's a cultural um, there are cultural aspects to that question that I don't think can be answered for the right answer for the rest of the world. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So culturally, if a uh, nation or country or uh, state or non-state actors or, or what have you, don't want or kind of reject uh, the idea of individual liberty and freedom well there's there's that uh, maybe reject is, is a strong word too but don't prioritize that for the glory or for the benefit of a larger group well you have things like that in the United States too um, I mean that gets you can draw that back to team sports right? Uh, Mm -hmm. You you know, you're an athlete as a kid. I was an athlete as a kid. You love playing a sport and doing your role individually, but having it take on a, uh, a larger meaning when you're on a team, that's all going towards, towards one goal. I think the difference is in America, we pretty resoundly reject that idea coming from the state. And we don't like yeah. the state imposing that upon us. Now, if that's a church group, if that's a sports team, if that's a company, uh, if, if it's that, if it's some other social or civic organization, a community, a neighborhood, then we love thinking like that. But thinking of a state coming down and telling us what to do and that it's it's the benefit for, you know. It's the benefit for all. We we've, there's just too there's too many people that have read 1984, you know, to yeah. <laughs> uh, to to kind of embrace that 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 big brother, um, the love of big brother, so to speak. A lot of it, I think, gets back to our founding uh, principles as well, being based off the Enlightenment in Western Europe and the idea of, for lack of a better word, the sanctity of the individual um, and and the rights of the individual. And so you have you have cultures that haven't gone through uh, those uh, academic or intellectual, uh, processes or I'm trying to phrase this the right way. Uh, let's say steps for now, right. Um, that they haven't gone through those intellectual steps, but that implies that, you know, you're go, you need to go somewhere or that the steps take you somewhere, you know, to this, this promised land where where we are in the west right and that's not necessarily true and and other states are are finding that out can those systems coexist with each other? I would argue that to agree to a degree that autocracies will always be put on their back foot or uh, scared or threatened. Uh, threatened thank you threatened by the idea of of a government made up of uh, individuals who decide to have that government as opposed to a government which has power and provides for its people and uh, is therefore not for you to question uh, whether or not that government is uh, is the best government for you. The past is prologue to the present. So all these other cultures and countries and nations have their own history of how they got to where they are. And so that's that's not something that should just be overlooked and whitewashed and said, oh, hey, yeah, I mean, you know, America's got to this point or the West has gotten to this point. Shouldn't everyone else jump on board? I mean, that, that you know, the, the world doesn't work that way. People have their own viewpoints as they should. But how do we get along as a as a community of neighborly countries uh, in a world that has shrunk so much due to globalization, uh, where we're all relying on each other for in different aspects and how will that play out?
0: You talked about one of your passions being the human experience in general close us out with whatever uh, whatever thoughts you'd like to on how this all ties into the human experience in general that that excites you.
1: Well we're all actors in this in this game uh, or in this in this play right or in this uh, in this thing called life. Uh, and, and like I said the past is prologue so the story happened started a long time ago and the story's going on now. And hopefully for the sake of my kids and future generations, the the story continues to go. And we're all part of that. And whatever you've got going on in your life, or I have going on in my life, you can draw so many parallels from other aspects of literature or history, where it's like, it's all happened before. And I just find that, Fascinating that we are connected to other stories, to, to our families, you know, genealogically and to our families historically. There are stories or experiences that transcend families and nations and, and cultures and are, are common to all humans.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Dead Poet Society earlier. It reminds me of Walt Whitman's quote that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse.
1: Oh, I love that. I'll do a uh, a Ralph Waldo Emerson one. Let me look it up real quick for you. What is success? To laugh often and much. To win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children. To earn the appreciation of honest critics. And endure the betrayal of false friends. To appreciate the beauty. To find the best in others. To leave the world a bit better. Whether by a healthy child. A garden patch. Or a redeemed social condition. To know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. That is to have succeeded.
0: Hey, thank you very much for listening to this little creation. If it made you smile, let's do it again. And in the meantime, please leave a rating and a review. Follow on Instagram at Most Alive Podcast for bonus content, previews, or to contact me and maybe even tell some other people where they can feel most alive.